HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on Meat in Three, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween, from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. Tune in to Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome baking expert Erin Jean McDowell. In this episode, we're going to talk to Erin about what pies we should all be baking, her new cookbook, The Book on Pie, and we'll hear Aaron's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We send our support to everyone coping with the pandemic and our gratitude to all the essential workers keeping the world going. Today, we're going to put all the stress and distraction of COVID and the election aside and focus on something joyful, pie. And as always, we launch the pie conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Baking mattered to Julia. She was as keen to master pastry as she was to turn out a perfect cocoa vin. She made it her mission to know all the science, technique, and flavor behind baking. She also wanted to share the knowledge she gained to get others to try it and enjoy it as much as she did. 
Julia wrote in The Way to Cook, The mastery of pie crust dough and puff pastry really makes one feel like a cook. It's that fundamental. In Julia's Kitchen Wisdom, she features pastry-making tips, like using a properly cold work surface, the value of blind baking pie and tart crusts, and that a mix of regular and cake flour and of butter and shortening can yield a more tender pie crust like those she savored in France. Someone who shares Julia's aspirations for wonderful pie crust and the skills to teach us how to do it and enjoy it is cookbook author, recipe developer, and food stylist Erin Jean McDowell. A Lawrence, Kansas native, she studied at the Culinary Institute of America, Hyde Park, New York, before settling in New York City as a freelance creative in food media. She regularly contributes recipes to the New York Times, teaches baking on the Food Network, and hosts Food 52 series Bake It Up a Notch. Her first book, The Fearless Baker, was named one of the best baking books of 2017 by the New York Times. She's also won an IACP award for food styling and photography, and has done the food styling on baking guru Rose Levy Barenbaum's last four books, and even on Questlove's cookbook. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and her dog, Brimley. Erin joins us today to talk about what it takes to be a great baker, pie making for the holidays, and about her brand new, The Book on Pie, Everything You Need to Know to Bake Perfect Pies. And when she says everything, she means it. You'll find out. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We're delighted you could join us, and we're delighted to provide a distraction from everything that is so challenging right now. Absolutely. There's uh, not much better to soothe the mind than to get in the kitchen and do a little baking. I agree. It's very, yes, I'm planning it for election <laughs> eve. So when did you fall in love with baking and decide you, and, and was at the same time you decided you, you knew at that moment you wanted to be a baking professional or was were they two kind of very separate moments? I, I think I definitely fell in love with baking before I thought of it as a career because I just enjoyed being in the kitchen from a young age. Um, I'm lucky enough to come from one of those families where my mom is an amazing cook. My grandma was an amazing cook. And more than that, you know, we kind of as a family just love food. So, you know, parties at our house were um, sometimes themed around what we were going to eat, you know, finding something that we could center the whole gathering around, something that sometimes we could all pitch in and make together. Um, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, it just, it was definitely sort of the way that I was raised was sort of to love food. And um, there was a lot of good food around, so it was hard not to fall in love with it. And baking in particular, um, I just always was kind of creative. And so when my mom would let me, uh, you know, pipe icing from a pastry bag onto some cookies, that felt like, I was, you know, being handed a paintbrush and a canvas in a way, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I realized that I wanted to do it professionally when I was a teenager. I had been thinking I might go to art school. I always wanted to be an artist, and I have two older brothers, one who's a painter and one who's a photographer, so they sort of inspired that in me. And um, But the problem was I wasn't very good at art. <laughs> I, I was trying really hard, but I wasn't. And um, one day I came home from a ceramics class and my mom was decorating a cake using a tool that was similar to something I'd been using in the ceramics studio. And it was just like a light bulb moment. I thought if I was a pastry chef, I could be an artist and I could play in the kitchen every day. And that was that was what started it all. 
Well, and I would correct that, that you are an artist. You just hadn't discovered your right medium. Exactly. Exactly. Anyone who's seen your work, I mean, I think we'll talk about that a little. It's slightly intimidating because you're really good at making beautiful, beautiful pictures of food and beautiful food. So there you go. And what amazing, amazing family to be from that turns out three artistic children and (laughs) is obsessed with food. I love it. And so, (laughs) so why not? Why not? Yeah, no. And I think we were um, talking about before the show that we're both from around Kansas City. And I think there's a lot of preconceptions about Kansas and Kansas City. But actually, if you're from there, it's quite an artistic community. It's a community that has lots of artists and values the arts and is where Hallmark Cards is headquartered and all these things I think are reinforcing but are not top of mind for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it is a very... uh you know, creative, uh, encouraging place. And, you know, some like a lot of uh, towns in the Midwest, larger towns in the Midwest, because, and I use larger, you know, (laughs) somewhat relatively, I know Kansas City is still quite small, especially now living where I live. But, um, but in those larger communities, you know, you've got a lot farther to go before the next major city. So of course, it's natural for a lot of artists and creative people to kind of um, find their outlets. And I'll tell you, when I go home to Kansas City now, the restaurant scene continues to, to sh- I mean, not now, I suppose I should clarify. In the last times I have been home, which has been obviously not in 2020, um, I was really, really pleased to see some of the, you know, stretches and the the areas where you're getting some new, exciting stuff in the food world as well. So it's just, um, it's a place I'm very happy and proud to be from. I love it. Me too. I know. And I, I, I have the same thing where I haven't been able to be back in a long time. So people are like rattling off all these barbecue places that I never heard of. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? No, they're can't new. That's a new thing. So let, let's talk more about the pie thing. And so how, how did you become so specifically passionate about pie? Okay. Well, this is, <laughs> this is where my, my story gets sort of, uh, uh, I'm very inspired by my family, as you can always already tell by some of the things that I've said. I've already referenced them in, in several of the answers. So um, I was about 14 years old and I um, started baking pies with my grandma on a somewhat consistent basis. We baked two things together pretty consistently. We would bake pies and we would bake bread. And the reason for this is because my grandma lived alone and she lived kind of out in the country. So she didn't always love to bake if she was going to be the only one to eat it because she would eat the whole thing herself. And so she liked to have at least one other person around to help her finish that loaf of bread or help her uh, distribute some slices of pie. So I had I had these things when I was young called Grandma Days, where I would spend the day with my grandma. It's a great creative name for what I, what I would do with her. And um, we loved to bake on those days. Um, and it just sort of started happening. She asked me once to help her bake a pie for her to take to sort of a... a social event. And I was just excited to have a project. So I helped her with it. And then I got to carry it into the the party later. And a lot of bakers will tell you that their favorite thing about baking is sharing it with other people and making other people happy. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing. I walked in the door and everyone's eyes, they didn't go on to me. They went on to that pie. You know, it was like- But you were holding it. You were holding but something I delicious. Holding the pie. I had made the pie exactly. And I, that feeling of like, wow, I can make people really happy with something that I made myself with my with my own hands and kind of how- 
fun the process was of making it, but then also how fun the process of serving and sharing it was. And um, I was 16 years old when I kind of, when that light bulb moment I mentioned where I realized I wanted to go to pastry school happened. So between 14 and 16, my grandma and I were kind of just baking for fun. But around 16 years old, I got my first job in a bakery. And as soon as I started getting a little professional experience, grandma and I's baking like stepped it up a notch. We (laughs) suddenly weren't baking one pie. We were baking like three or four to take to friends and neighbors and, um, we started making all the pies for our family's Thanksgiving feast, and we would typically have between 20 and 30 people at our family's Thanksgiving. So it was quite a number of pies. And it became one of my favorite holiday traditions, this process of baking with her. Um, and because we were baking the same thing so frequently, I was also really learning, you know, baking has a reputation of being very by the book. You need to be very exact and very precise. And one of the things that I think inspires me, um, you know, my my Julia reference uh, also, of one of the many things about her that inspires me is that reminder that if you kind of understand that science and you understand what's going on behind a recipe, um, you can bake a lot more with your senses. You can bake a little bit more freely. You still have to measure things precisely. You still have to follow those rules. But you understand what's going on. And pie was the first thing I really learned to bake that way, learning to bake with my senses. What should it look like at this stage? What should it feel like? What should it smell like? You know, all of those things. Um, And so that was really why I have such a special connection with pie. It's one of the things I've been baking the longest. I have these very fond memories of making it with my grandma and kind of us getting better at the process together and sharing that. And then I also just truly love its versatility and I love eating it. I still just love eating pies so much. And so many pies that are out there are not as good as the pies you are going to get if you make it at home in your kitchen. So since homemade pies are best, we all got to be making more pies at home. (laughs) And yeah, no, I want to find out what sort of if the pandemic has kind of influenced your pie choices. But I also wanted to ask specifically I'm sure it was varied, but what were the top pies that you and your grandmother made? So Grandma Jean was, uh, you know, loved a good apple, and we made a lot of apple pies. And especially since we were making pies for Thanksgiving, typically every year we were making um, at least one apple, usually two apple, come to think of it, for my family. They really like apple in my family. So we'd make apples and we'd make pecan and we would make pumpkin. And that's actually another great kind of memory of something I learned from my grandma that there was one year we were making a pecan pie. We were following the same recipe from the year before. And I, my grandma said, I've always seen recipes for chocolate pecan pies, but you know, I've never done that because I don't know if the rest of the family would like it. And, and I kind of said, well, we're the ones making the pies. <laughs> so maybe we should just put the chocolate in. And we did. And it was so delicious. And it was like those kinds of moments of just like, yeah, we're in charge. We can change the recipe if we want. We can tweak it a little bit and suit our own. But the one pie that I always think about my grandma the most with is a pure rhubarb pie. My grandma loved a strawberry rhubarb. So do I. But she always said there are not enough pure rhubarb pies out there. It doesn't need anything else. So the very first full pie recipe you're going to see, it's in the fruit pie chapter of my book. It's a pure rhubarb pie for Grandma Jean. <laughs> wow. And I, I don't know why I just jumped to this, but just thinking about my own sort of childhood, which is probably predates yours. Um were the were the apples and the rhubarb local, or would you just, would it be what was ever in the grocery store? 
we would get apples from a place right near my grandma's house. Sometimes the, when, you know, when it was in season, there was a small orchard near her house. Um, she lived in a very tiny town called Overbrook, Kansas, uh, whose slogan painted on the water tower is don't overlook Overbrook. <laughs> it's very easy to overlook it. And, but there was a small orchard near Overbrook and we would get apples, um, sometimes, but yeah, usually just what was at the grocery store. Um, Rhubarb was something that sometimes some members of my family were able to successfully grow in the spring. Um, My mom and grandma both were avid gardeners and my mom and dad still are. They grow a huge amount of the vegetables that they eat in a year. Um, They grow all their own garlic and all sorts of things. So so there are some green thumbs in my family. Occasionally we were using, um, you know, local or, or homegrown stuff. But as you know, not as many fruits grow very well in Kansas. So not always using good local stuff for sure. Yeah, that I was going to ask, could you grow rhubarb in Kansas? Kind of. You can, you can, um, but it's, you know, it's a short season and not, it's not very easy, I don't believe, to, to grow. And you'd have to ask my mom, the gardener, about, I know she said that there was a difference between, there are multiple kinds of rhubarb. And one mm. of the styles of rhubarb is a little hardier and grows a little bit um, grows a little bit better there, I believe. But I am not, I don't, I did not inherit either of their green thumbs. I uh, just, just go to the farmer's market when I can. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you about your first book, which is, you know, titled, I think very specifically, The Fearless Baker, which I think is referring to what you want to make people rather than necessarily yourself. But yes. I I wanted to ask you, why do you think people have such fear when it comes to baking? And, and what's your advice on overcoming it? I, I think that um, Julia has some great advice in overcoming it, first of all, before I even tell you why I think people are afraid of it, which is that like people need to stop apologizing so much for the things that they make. And mm. when something doesn't look exactly like it does in the picture, um, you just said, you know, sometimes my things look kind of intimidating, but I've been baking for over 20 years professionally. You know, it's it, I mean, it's or for over 20 years and so, for a large part of that professionally. So you know, there's a muscle memory associated with baking. And so I think that the reason that most people are so scared of baking is because they don't exercise that muscle enough Mm -hmm. and they just don't, they don't know what to look for. And especially with um, baking being more precise, I think people take those moments of it of, oh, well, one time I measured a little bit too much flour and the cake was bad. I view that as, well, now you know why the cake wasn't so good. It's because of that mistake <laughs> and that won't happen again, you know, if you measure the, the, the other way. But I also think that a lot of baking recipes leave some information out that um, not intentionally, just sometimes it's for print space. Sometimes it's um, because people assume you'll know that information. And I, uh, what I always loved about watching Julia cook, for example, is that very like hand-holding kind of pep talk that she would give you, whether she was even intending to or not, it was always very encouraging. And I try to channel some of that when I write recipes, like you'll find in some of my recipes, it's written, it'll look weird now, don't freak out. Because Mm. I know that there is somebody on the other end of that book who's looking at it at that stage thinking, oh, I've messed it up, and starts panicking before they even, you know, move on to the next step. So I think that um, sometimes it's about that muscle memory of if you only bake a pie, one pie every year at Thanksgiving, it's it's going to take you maybe 10 years to, to really get great at making pies. But if you bake a few pies every year and sometimes you bake a cake and sometimes you try bread, 
Um, I think that's one of the reasons why so many people finally tackled bread during the pandemic is that they finally were at home and they could watch they could watch the yeast if it if it took longer to double than the recipe said they they weren't freaking out because they didn't have anywhere to go. So I think that there are some of those things um, where it comes down to muscle memory, really. No, I think that's great. And I think it's sometimes intimidating to be told, well, you just have to practice. But I think what you just said is even more helpful, which is that it's not just practicing. It's also like giving yourself a break and knowing that it might get messed up, but that's all part of the process and that nobody, even someone talented like you, doesn't just do it perfectly every single time. Oh my gosh, I've made some ugly, ugly food in my day (laughs) and some some not tasting good food too. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's a a journey and a process. And it's also part of what makes it so rewarding because then when you get it right, you just feel like dancing. I don't know. It feels amazing. Or, or you crack that solution. I'm struck by actually a recipe you probably know because it's in Food 52's Genius Desserts, which are supposed to be these, you know, easy recipes that turn out perfectly. And I think it's a Rose Levy Berenbaum brownie recipe that I had my daughter do with um, our nanny. And it came out perfectly the first time. So we, because she's very intimidated by doing things she doesn't already know, although she's actually quite a good intuitive cook. This is the nanny, not my daughter. She just likes <laughs> eating chocolate. And um, so then the second time they did it, it kept coming out like flat as a pancake. And we went over the ingredients and all of that. And I was like, but well, no, you used all the right stuff. Can't figure it out. Second time, same thing. Second time, third time. It tasted okay. And then she finally realized in that recipe, it says, and I've never, I can't remember what's the butter or the flour, but it's one of those ingredients says like 280 grams plus two tablespoons. And she was just doing the two tablespoons and forget. Mm. So she was using all the ingredients. And finally, last time I was like, oh, let's do it again. And she's like, oh, no, it's not going to work. I was like, okay, remember, we figured it out. And so now we're fine. And I didn't tell her that I only had medium eggs and not large eggs because I knew (laughs) that was going to have an impact. And so she did it out pretty well. And she's like, it's still not. I was like, oh, that's because the, you know, the water and the large eggs actually, you know, makes a difference. But, um, you know, but that's like what five or six times before we got back on the horse to something, you know, that was working. But that's kind of right. That's the level of investment and just saying whatever that you need. Yeah. And I think with cooking, it sometimes intimidates people uh, either less or maybe it's not accurate to say less, just in a different way. Because with cooking, you can kind of taste it throughout the process and you can kind of say, oh, I don't think it tastes quite like how I want it to taste. And you can do something about it. And sometimes people, I think they put in all that effort with a baked item and they sometimes don't know that it's not how they want it until the very end. And it feels, you know, I mean, that's a that's you, you want, I just said that when you do it right, it makes you feel like dancing. Well, when you don't do it right, I can certainly understand how frustrating it is um, time-wise and all of those things. But I think it's sometimes about also making sure, just as you said, I always ask someone who tells me that they had a problem with the recipe. I said, did you read the recipe all the way through before you started? And it's such a small piece of advice, but it's, you know, there are so many recipe writers put all these little tidbits in there and, you know, the, the tiniest thing, you know, that you don't do that they say to do, it really could make a difference. And especially when you've got somebody like the amazing Rose Levy Berenbaum, she really tests things and writes them in such a precise way so that if you do it exactly as she says, you know, you're going to have success every time. But it's also so precise that I think that that can be its own set of intimidating at times of just like, oh, I have to do everything just right and then I'll get the end result. So. Well- 
No, yeah. uh, and uh, I think that, but it's also experience, right? Because <laughs> I just reminding me of a time where I recently did not read a recipe all the way through, got everything together, and then realized that you had to have. It really was almost impossible to do if you didn't have a um, a KitchenAid mixer. Like you couldn't just use a handheld. It was just too much work and all of that. And I was halfway through when I was like, "This is not going to work." But if you have experience, I was like, "Okay." You're in the weeds, but you've got all this food and you don't want to waste it. And once you have more experience, you can figure out, okay, it's not going to be perfect, but I can do this and this and this, and it'll probably be good enough. Absolutely. And that's that same thing of like, um, you know, I've definitely made pies, you know, from a vacation, you know, uh, you know, tiny little rental kitchen cabin uh, I've made pies using a rolling pin as my, uh, or a wine bottle as my rolling pin and things in that vein where you're sort of like, it's not the ideal set of circumstances, but like you can still cook, you can still bake and the learning process, all those things that come along the way, you know, they're, that's sort of the benefit. That's that extra like little bit that you get is that that promise you're going to get to even make it better the next time. Well, and I hope it helps people here that even people with experience end up getting themselves into having to, you know, dig themselves out of a deep hole now and then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just like anything creative, right? It's subjective. So sometimes you might even make a recipe and you made it exactly right and it looks good and you still don't like it. I mean, there are all kinds of things that can happen when it comes to food. So I think knowing that mistakes happen and, and that's something, yeah, that I think it's, it's fun for me to post the mistakes sometimes on Instagram. The other day I was taking a birthday cake somewhere. I took it the exact same way. I always transport cakes in my car and it fell over. It fell over and completely like smushed on the side. And I took a picture of it and I was just like, it literally happens to everyone. <laughs> like every, I worked very hard on that cake, still can make a mistake, still can smush it, all those things. It still happens. It's still at the end of the day. It's a great one of those amazing quotes. At the end of the day, it's just food. <laughs> and and bakers are still human beings, too. Yes, absolutely. All right. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back to talk more with Erin about her new cookbook, The Book on Pie. And as won't surprise you, it is also about baking pies, both sweet and savory. We'll be right back. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Welcome back. We're talking to cookbook author, recipe developer, and food stylist Erin Jean McDowell about her new book, The Book on Pie, Everything You Need to Know to Bake Perfect Pies. And I know you're really excited because I saw one of your posts. So congratulations on the publication of the book. It's just out now, right? It actually comes out a week from tomorrow. So it's just about to come out. And uh, oh, I'm sorry. I guess I didn't think about that when it's it comes out November 10th. 
Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I'm very, exactly. I'm, I was like, it, it might be out by the time someone listens to it. Yes, this. yes. So it is, comes out November 10th, and I'm very excited. Thank you so much. Con- well, congrats again. And it's really, it's full of uh, mouth-watering recipes and stunning photos, and there's just packed full of information and ideas. I mean, I was saying, like, who knew there were so many types of pie crust? So I feel like you could have even called it the pie Bible. But then I also, back to what we were just talking about in the first half of the show, I mean, do pies need to be perfect? I love that question because I believe even the most perfect pie, the pie that makes somebody go, oh, wow, it's still a little wonky. I think every pie is a little bit imperfect somewhere. And that's one of the things that I love about it as a pastry chef, as somebody who has you know, seeing these precision chocolate work and towering wedding cakes. There's just something about hot pie that is inherently homey to me. And that's one of the other reasons why I'm surprised more people don't opt to bake it, because there are a lot of ways to decorate a pie that are a lot easier than decorating cakes or doing royal icing on cookies, things of that nature. And um, and of course, at the end, it just tastes so good. So I don't believe a pie has to be perfect. And I believe even one that you see, if you were to look at one that I was holding and say to me, it's perfect, I'd probably be able to say, but look right here, it's it's not totally even right here because sometimes the pastry just wants to do its own thing <laughs> and we let it. Well, and I think the perfection comes in the deliciousness is the one imperfect pie might be the one that tastes terrible. Yes, that's a very good point. You're <laughs> right. At the end of the day, we want it to taste amazing. And if it's a little wonky and still tastes amazing, then it's an amazing pie. I don't know if you're a great British Bake Off fan, but in that show, right, you can do the worst looking thing, but if it tastes amazing, you'll sail through. Where if you make something beautiful that tastes bad, you're going to still be in trouble. Yeah, and I really appreciate that about that show because, you know, just as we spoke before, you know, I didn't necessarily view pastry or food as a medium, but it absolutely is. And there are people that are incredibly talented with making things look amazing, but you want it to you want it to taste really good too. That's one of the reasons why I use, even though my grandma taught me to use a mixture of shortening and butter because the shortening has a higher melting point. So it's a little bit easier to use to get that mm-hmm. flaky crust. Mm. I use all butter because if you manipulate it properly, it tastes so amazing. <laughs> I use I use butter. Like Julia taught me to use butter, right? She taught us all, what did she say? If you're afraid of butter, use cream. That's so funny. that's my philosophy. <laughs> well, it, let's stick there because I did want to ask you that because I was asking someone else, like, is there a difference between pie crust and a tart? And because I think your, your basic might be the wrong word to apply to it, but kind of upfront recipe for pie crust is all butter. So how, how do you, do you differentiate them? Because Julia kind of doesn't either. She calls it pie crust or pat brise. But what's your take on that? Yeah. So um, I, it, in general, the main difference, I get asked this question a lot is also what is the difference between pie and tart? Um, And for me, really, the only difference is usually the depth of the pan. Um, (laughs) Usually tarts are, are shorter and have less crust to, and, you know, a thinner layer of filling. And so I'm a little, to me, a pie is, is a filling with a crust. Um, a crust with a filling in it. That is a pie. So that could be, I actually joke a lot that cheesecake, is that really a cake or is it a pie? Because it's a custard that you bake in a crust, 
just like a pumpkin pie, right? Pumpkin pie is a custard oh, I'm baked with in a crust. Total misnomer. It's a pie. Yes. Absolutely. So I have a recipe in the book called cheesecake pie, but it's not really cheesecake pie. It's just, just cheese pie. Cheesecake. Yeah, <laughs> it's cheese pie. <laughs> um, but but so I think um, I think that that for me is the difference. When I'm saying pie dough, I'm typically thinking of a very flaky pastry, very light and airy and, you know, the kind of thing that when you take a bite out of it, you know, some crumbs fall on your shirt inevitably because it's so flaky. Um, With a tart crust, I'm usually referring to a slightly mealier or crumblier texture. So um, even almost airing on the side of like almost like cookie dough, it can be. But can you use a pie dough to make a tart? Absolutely. Can you use a tart dough or a cookie style dough to make a pie? 100%. If it's a crust and a filling, I think it's pie. And and I think in your book, you're giving so many different types of giving recipes for so many different types of crust that you're kind of blending and and in the two concepts so you've got ones that are much more traditional to what american pies are often made from and and ones that are much closer to a traditional french tart crust right yes absolutely in fact i think i originally had kind of a section in the book it was like try pat brise it's the french way because i love pat brise it's such a like reliable good dough but then there's a lot of other things out there and i also wanted to make sure my, there are a lot of amazing pie books out there. And what I wanted to offer with mine is something that I didn't see that existed necessarily, which was this mix and match ability. So it has, the book has 40 plus crusts, 50 plus toppings and finishes and 140 full pie recipes. So you can make any of those full pie recipes, or you could take the filling from this one and put it in this crust and put this topping on it and make your own pie. Cause that's also what I get asked a lot is, is kind of how do I make a pluot pie? I've made a peach pie, but how do I make one with plums? How do I make this? How do I make that? And again, a lot of those techniques are sort of universal across it. So that mix and match ability, um, you know, there are definitely some crusts that are way less traditional in my book, including um, I have one that is, uh, you know, finely ground nuts, and that's the base of the crust. So it's naturally gluten-free, and it gives it this kind of toasty, crunchy texture to the pie. So there are a lot of different ways to kind of think outside the box. Like I said, for me, it's more just about saying, well, if pie is crust and a filling, what are all the different things that we can do with it? No, I love that. And that that actually leads me into one of the other things I wanted to ask you is, as I said, the book is super comprehensive, and then it has this kind of mix and match, take over yourself, experiment, or try different combinations, and you give lots of recommendations, so it's not like freewheeling. But I, I thought it would also be helpful to hear, because I think it's a book that can be great for beginners for a certain reason, but then also anyone who's spent a lot of time baking pies and loves baking pies will get a lot out of it. So can you kind of describe where you see a beginner using it and where someone who's an old hand might really also get a lot out of it? Yeah, absolutely. I also, I, I'm glad that you are saying that because that was definitely the goal um, I was actively keeping in mind because even I, uh, a relative, you know, an experienced pie baker, there are times that I want the lowest possible lift. So, you know, I think that every cookbook, every baking book needs to have something for every skill level because somebody who's just learning to bake wants to be able to open it and find things to just dive right into. So I always, in all my books, I rank everything easy, medium, or hard, and there's an equal amount of, of each category. So the idea is if you're just starting out, you can find any recipe marked easy and start there and you're going to have a grand old time. 
similarly experienced bakers, you know, if they're looking for a lighter lift, if it's a weeknight, they still might want to opt for one of those easy recipes, right? And um, I also always provide information in every recipe of what can be made ahead. Pies in particular are very, um, I think they have a reputation for taking a really long time. And pies can definitely... um, they they will defy impatience. So if you're not if you're not patient, your your pie will show it. Um, and so I always encourage people then try to break up the process. You know, make the pie dough one day, do the par baking the next day, then make the filling on the day you actually want to serve the pie. And when you break it up like that, I always recommend the same thing when doing a big baking project of any sort, like a layer cake. It's the same thing. If you bake the cakes and make the frosting and decorate it all in one day, no wonder you're frazzled by the end of the decorating. <laughs> like if you bake the cakes the day before and all you have to do is enjoy that process. And I think that um, that's one of the things that I sort of love about pie is it is a little bit more, I wouldn't even say time consuming because the actual amount of hands-on time isn't always more, but I do think, you know, it's a slow process. And I think we could all use a little bit more of that in our lives. I can admit it fully. I like am running around all the time, going way too hard, you know, like thinking too much about other stuff. So it's an, an opportunity to really slow down and enjoy the process. And then you really get to reap those rewards with a better pie if you slow down and enjoy that process. So I definitely think there's stuff in there for any level of baker. And you can kind of use those markings as a guide to, to go through your pie journey. Okay, I want to do a little bit of a technical lightning round, if you'll humor me. Yes. With, um, so food processor or not? Uh, I say your hands are best for feeling what's going on. But if you naturally have hot hands, the food processor or the pastry blender would be the way to go. So um, these answers are always really hard for me because I still feel like it's a bit of a personal choice. I'm a big believer that there isn't just one right way to do things. So uh, that's what I would say. I say for me, the best way, bar none, is by hand, using your fingers. But if your hands melt butter at the slightest touch, <laughs> you might want to go the other way. And we'll note that Julia was a big proponent of the food processor. And I think her view was, too, if it made the process so much easier and you were more likely to do it that way, and rather than, I don't know, buying a frozen one that was inferior – that was such a fine shortcut to it. Yes, a hundred percent. And also Pat Brise, um, my Pat Brise recipe in the book, I do make in the food processor. So, and part of that is because of the way the butter is incorporated, right? It's incorporated a little bit more fully. And to Julia's point, you know, that takes all of 10 seconds in a food processor and it would take several minutes by hand. So I agree. I think that if it's the one thing that's standing between you and making it is, is, the fear of doing it by hand, then yeah, use the food processor, hundred percent. When should you, do? When should you blind bake a crust, and when do you not need to? So I have to. I'm sorry that I'm bad at lightning round because I have to. Do one <laughs> You're going to give me a long answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it won't be that long. I'm going to keep it really short. But I do want to make an important distinction of this because not everybody knows this distinction. Blind baking is to fully bake a crust before adding a cold set filling. Um, so I would blind bake any, any pie crust that has a filling that's going to set cold. So whipped cream based fillings, puddings, uh, you know, cream pies, anything like that needs to be blind baked. Par baking is when you partially bake something before it's baked again. So I par bake any single crust pie that has a filling that's going to be baked again. 
which means when baked again, fillings are something that would possibly be savory that you would have already cooked ingredients. Uh, or I just even way. mean like pumpkin pie. A pumpkin pie, the crust will not get baked um, fully if you just pour the custard into a raw crust and bake it. The crust won't have enough time to bake in the time it will take the custard to set. So you partially bake it, par bake it for a few minutes to start the crust setting. Then you add the filling to it, bake it again until the custard is set. And by then the pie crust will have had enough time to bake. So um, I just mean any filling that will be returned to the oven, whether it's sweet or savory, if it's something that requires being baked in the oven, you would want, and it's a single crust pie, you'll want to par bake it. If it's a filling that will not be going into the oven that you're going to make and then you're going to put the pie into the refrigerator like cream pie, that's when you would mm. want to bake. Mm. I get it. And actually, the only difference between par baking and blind baking is how it's the same process as just how long it's in the oven and how far you get the crust cooked. Exactly. Exactly. So when you're blind baking, you want to fully bake it because it's not going to be baked again in the oven. And when you're par baking, you're just trying to give it a head start. Okay. Now, what I've never heard of this before, although I understand what it is, but I was kind of figuring out when do you use them. So you have things about pilets in your book. And so what is a pilet and when should we consider baking? Uh, a pilot or uh, I sometimes also call them baby pies or mini pies or any, you know, there's lots of little names, but um, a pilot would be a, a miniature pie, a smaller pie, an individual pie. And um I actually had so many individual pie recipes in the book that um, my book was way too long and we had to cut some of them out. So we actually had that um, made into a little ebook that if you pre-ordered the book, you get that little ebook full of mini pie recipes. There are some mini pie recipes in the full book as well, because I love miniature pies, especially right now during the pandemic. Um, it's nice to make some individual portions because, you know, eating a full pie in a, a household with maybe only two or three people in it is a bit of a tall order. But with miniature pies, you can kind of parcel them out over several days. You could give some to friends or neighbors. Um, so there's a little bit more opportunity with that. And they're fun and cute, right? <laughs> Great. I, now, I, now I know I've been introduced. I mean, it's, it's not like rocket science, but I'd never had one. I never thought of one. So that's a great explanation of, of, of added value. So let's talk about the holidays now, because obviously pies and holiday season are very closely aligned. I'm sure it's not a coincidence that your book's coming out now. Um, <laughs> so, but I wanted to get your tips and thoughts, especially with so many recipes in, the, in, in your book, of what you think about or you would steer people toward for Thanksgiving. And maybe you could even do the easy versus hard and also for Christmas and the other related festive season holidays. What are your thoughts? Well, one of the things I always say, if you're looking for the easiest kind of most foolproof way to pie, you want to opt for a freeform pie, the most commonly known of which is the galette. Um, a freeform pie baked on a baking sheet is just because of that direct contact with the baking sheet. It doesn't require par or blind baking. You know, you don't have to worry about that kind of earlier stage. It's going to get nice and brown. And it has a really easy doneness trick, which is that if you shake your baking sheet, when the galette is done, it will move. It'll shift on the baking sheet. But when it is still a little bit raw, the dough, it will not move. So it, you, you, know, you might your, mean jiggle, right? I was just picturing people vigorously shaking a baking no, sheet. No, I actually mean the entire, uh, yeah, just jiggle the baking sheet. But what I mean yeah. is that the galette, <laughs> should, when it's properly baked, well, it'll just slide. kind of gently slide from one side to the other because it's set. And when it's 
not set yet, when the crust is still raw, it's sticky. So it sticks to the parchment paper and it will not move. Gotcha. So that's one of my favorites. Uh, you know, when you're for the holidays, it's just very reliable. You can do a nice apple galette. You can do um, really any fruit. Sometimes I use leftover cranberry sauce to make a galette after Thanksgiving. <laughs> mm. And I also think that, you know, pies have a particular um, reputation for being made around Thanksgiving. I do think a lot of people also make them at Christmas. But um, I just like also like to encourage people to think there's definitely pies you can make year round. And one of the best parts about pies for me, when it comes to that fruit component of it, um, of course, not all pies are fruit pies, but when you're thinking about the fruit component, you know, you inherently have a seasonal element there um, of what's in season right now and what could we bake into a pie. So one of my favorite pies to bake for Thanksgiving is Concord grape pie because they're in season right before Thanksgiving. And it's just such a short season and it's so delicious and juicy and it makes this incredible pie. So it's kind of fun to use that as a guide through the season. So by Christmas time, we'll start seeing some really beautiful citrus. And even though it's not technically, uh, you know, holiday, you know, December holiday pie, why couldn't you make a lemon meringue pie or a blood orange meringue pie or something, you know, fabulous with that really in season fruit. So um, that's one way that I like to think of it. And just thinking of your typical holiday flavors, I have a recipe in the book for kind of an eggnog pie that has a gingerbread crumb crust that's inspired by something my mom makes every year um, around Christmas time. Um, And so there's lots of ways to kind of take those memories or those flavors that you love and transition them for any holiday. I love those suggestions. That, that, that's great. The, the, uh, I think the seasonality thing is a great guide and, and um, the idea of citrus at Christmas because it's not, it is seasonally appropriate, but is not the necessary traditional go-to. So thanks for those. Yeah. I had to ask because you have such great photographs. I've seen some videos with Brimley, your dog. Is Brimley a Westie? Brimley is a Westie. He's a very large Westie. However, I um, most Westies we meet are significantly smaller than him. So he's almost 30 pounds. So he's quite well, a... He's a pie-bred Westie. Yeah, <laughs> yes. He, he does. Uh, I'm sure I will get you know some kind of negativity for feeding my dog some things that are human food. But... He loves pie crust, you guys. It's so funny. Well, that's <laughs> why I was going to ask, does he have dough. a favorite pie or he just likes the crust? He loves just the baked crust. Not, I don't give him raw crust, of course, just the baked crust. He really loves that. But um, the savory pies in the book, I started noticing he doesn't normally do this with sweet stuff. But, you know, when I'm cooking dinner, my dog will come into the kitchen because he smells whatever I'm cooking. And especially if it's meaty, he wants it. So some of the savory pies in the book, when they were in the oven, I would like leave the kitchen for a moment. And I'd come back and my dog's face was like practically pressed against the glass <laughs> because he was just like, I know there's meat in there and I want it. <laughs> Well, I don't think you need to worry because in all of the photographs, he looks deliriously happy. <laughs> He's a very, very sweet, uh, sweet dog and uh, a dog that really likes or at least doesn't mind having his picture taken. So there are quite a few photos of him throughout the book. And yeah, that is hard to do. So, <laughs> all right. After the break, Erin is going to share her Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice moment to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, Tweet us at JuliaJalJCF and let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really 
You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Erin, what's your Julia moment? Well, I have to just start off by saying that, of course, Julia is such an inspiration to me. And um, I definitely, my grandma and I would watch her uh, cooking shows. And I loved more than anything else the with, that when she would make a mistake, she would own up to it and, more importantly, plow through. Um, I learned a lot from that, but I have to say my absolute favorite moment was this time that she was making an omelet with David Letterman. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, she was making an omelet with David Letterman and she asked him to uh, eat. She said, oh, you can eat the whole egg and offered it to him, trying to get him to take a bite of the whole egg shell and all. And he, as he was sort of teasing uh, her about that, like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. In the time that it took for him to make his joke retort, she'd already made the omelet. <laughs> and I, I loved that, that whole thing of just like, I can make it faster than you can blink. I mean, I've watched her many videos of her making that omelet, uh, which she can do so lightning quick. But it was just something so funny about it, like a, a comedian, somebody who is very quick at thinking on their feet, couldn't even finish a sentence in the time it took her to finish an omelet. And I just loved that. That's great. And actually, I'm not sure that there's more than one clip of Julia on David Letterman, but you can see that on YouTube. And you see how masterful she is as both an expert and an entertainer and how she could hold her own with comedians as tough as David Letterman, too. Absolutely. And that not an ideal cooking circumstance. I mean, I'm sure she had control somewhat over what you were using and and everything, but like to to be able to execute something in an educational and informative way and also, like you said, entertain and just be the person that made us all, you know, how much how many people actually fell in love with food and cooking because of Julia and how many people actually just fell in love with Julia. It, we may never know. <laughs> Exactly. You know, no, it is just, it's just amazing to watch the old shows and the, the, the French chef episode on omelet making is just to me a marvel. It's one of the earlier color episodes, which is, makes, makes it one of the later French chef episodes. And Julia does several things in this episode. If you, and part of the clip is on our website where first of all, she starts talking about making omelets and all the different things you can do. And then she talks about giving her mother-in-law who she actually never knew um, a, a liver omelet. So she's making jokes. And then she starts doing math about how many omelets you could make for a dinner party. And on camera live, is calculating how many omelets, like something most people can't do with paper. She's doing live on television, on camera, while making an actual omelet. (laughs) I mean, that's exactly it. And that also shows exactly what I was talking about earlier in this conversation, too, of how powerful that muscle memory in the kitchen is. Because she could probably have made that omelet with a blindfold and, uh, you know, and over an open fire and, and and it would have still come out just like perfect every time. So there you go. There must be a video of someone trying that now. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And 
Uh, always so fun to to think about Julia and especially how I know everyone who comes on your podcast has stories of how she inspired them. But um, I was so excited to get your invitation because I could talk about Julia. We could have talked about her the entire time and I would have been very happy. So thank you. Well, my pleasure. And that's also because we make them have that story. So it's <laughs> not, not just coincidence, but thank you for acting like it is. Um, <laughs> And thank you for bringing us this joyful diversion into pie that I hope will inspire everyone to do some pie baking. Yes, me too. I think pie can be whatever you want it to be and anybody can pie. So I hope to see a lot more pies coming out of kitchens this this fall and winter. And to learn more about what Erin's up to, you can go to erinjeanmcdowell.com. Harry Potter fans, of which I am one, take note, there is an episode on the New York Times cooking YouTube channel with Aaron doing a Hogwarts sorting hat croquembouche. You don't want to miss it. It's tremendous fun. She's E. McDowell on Instagram for lots more entertaining and enticing pie pictures and pictures of Brimley. And Aaron.McDowell.92 on Facebook. The cookbook, again, is The Book on Pie, Everything You Need to Know to Bake Perfect Pies by Aaron Jean McDowell with photographs by Mark Weinberg. It's out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Encourage your friends to listen to this podcast and to follow at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. And we look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>